Hello and welcome to this Innovation Forum podcast with me, Ian Welsh, where we have some reflection from the recent Future of Plastics and Packaging conference in Amsterdam. During the event, I was pleased to speak with some of the event panel participants and get some comments on their sessions, focusing in particular on how business can build packaging solutions that deliver impact at scale. And so coming up are Ignacio Gavilan from the Consumer Goods Forum, Jody Roussel from Nestle, Camille Stephanie and Sophie Vergucht from Eastman, Jenny Vassenaar from Trivium Packaging and Christina Dixon from the Environmental Investigation Agency. I'm at the Future of Plastics and Packaging conference in Amsterdam and joining me now is Ignacio Gavilan, who's Director of Sustainability at the Consumer Goods Forum. Ignacio, when you started your session just now, you talked about the CGF being a collective action for positive change. So what are you doing in that regard on plastics and packaging? Basically, we started this journey back in 2017 when we committed to Ellen MacArthur Foundation and the Plastics Economy Global Commitment. So in support of that, we created a coalition of action that has now about 40 companies between retailers and manufacturers, some of the top brands. In essence, what we did is create three work streams. And in this particular order, because we believe it's the right one, the first is the fundamental redesign of plastic packaging, the second is EPR, the third is chemical recycling. So on the fundamental redesign of plastic packaging, we created nine golden design rules that go from PET to HDPE, everything that you can find in a supermarket. And these are relatively simple things like removing pigments, like removing headspace, eliminated unnecessary plastic packaging in those products where we can. So I believe most members welcome that, it's good guidance, it's been benchmarked, so members are implementing this in support again of the Ellen MacArthur Foundation uh, Global Commitment. Second one, EPR, obviously we need good systems in place for collection, for sorting and recycling. We do have a nice paper out with seven principles on what good or optimal EPR will look like. And we're advocating, or the companies are advocating for those in different geographies. We prioritize North America, Canada, US, then EU and UK, and also Vietnam and Indonesia. And the third element of all of this is chemical recycling. So we believe it's the only possible solution for hard to recycle plastic today. 99% of what gets recycled today is mechanical recycling and it can coexist. So there has to be complementarity of the two systems. We want mechanical to continue, we want mechanical to scale up, but we also need capacity when it comes to chemical recycling because all the flexible material is now ending in incinerators or even worse, the environment. There certainly are some interesting (coughs) chemical recycling solutions coming on the market. Something you said earlier I thought was really interesting, you said there needs to be a realisation that we can't recycle our way out of the problem. Had there been a danger of that being a mindset that people had been, it was too too prevalent, that people were thinking, right, we'll just recycle our way out of the problem. That's why I purposely started with the fundamental redesign of plastic packaging. We don't want recycling to be the only solution. So it has to start with a reduction of virgin material and uh, making our plastic packaging more efficient and then chemical recycling. So Great. Well, thanks. That's been made it very clear. Thank you, Ignacio Gavilan from Consumer Goods Forum. Thank you so much, Ian. Joining me now is Jodie Roussel, Global Public Affairs Lead for Packaging and Sustainability with Nestle. Welcome, Jodie. Thank you, Ian. We were just talking on a panel looking at legislation as an opportunity and what business can do to utilise regulation to drive effective action. From Nestle's perspective, how are you using regulation to drive action? To put it into context, the food and beverage industry is a regulated industry. And this regulation ensures a level playing field, fair distribution of responsibilities, and 
also the opportunity for a sharing of responsibilities, particularly in the scope of EPR fees and other types of legislation. Now, Nestle is a company that thrives on good regulation, and we see it as a tool to enable action by an entire industry, not just first movers, for everyone to get involved making the systems changes that we see are necessary for the future. When we look at driving regulation further and faster, I'll give you a snapshot of the current state of regulation. We are observing both national laws being developed as well as some draft laws. So in the case of EPR, there are 58 national laws in place today, 37 in draft. For reuse and refill, 18 national laws in place, 6 in draft. For deposit return, 31 national laws and 22 in draft form. If you add those in addition to laws that have been passed but have not yet been implemented, we actually see a tremendous amount of action happening at the national level and sometimes also at the local level to support a new infrastructure that will enable the management, collection, sorting and recycling or reuse of post-consumer packaging. EPR, of course, being extended producer responsibility. Bring that in mind, what do you think that good regulation should look like? At Nestle, we've taken a lot of voluntary actions that can show the way forward for good regulation. Um, some we do on our own, such as our negative list, identifying voluntary materials that we've identified to phase out. The Consumer Goods Forum's Golden Design Rules, of which we're a partner and we're also working to implement, supporting norms for paper recyclability or sustainable sourcing. We also support, in addition to extended producer responsibility and deposit return schemes, we're a strong supporter of the movement forward to negotiate a UN treaty on plastics to ensure all material is collected and sorted and recycled. Many countries today lack formalized collection and sorting systems, and we know that there are deliberate choices coming up on the horizon for policymakers to make. We see them really as playing the role of framing a canvas, and then we businesses can come and paint the picture on that canvas based on the framework that they build, and those are based on societal objectives. In terms of the UN Treaty and the opportunity that this presents to us, we've supported a, a coalition being developed, the Business Coalition for a Global Plastics Treaty, which is a group of businesses forming to support comprehensive action on the full life cycle of plastics by regulators. This is facilitated by the World Wildlife Federation and also the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. We see in the future, in the near term, a lot of discussion on national action plans that will take place following the treaty. We need leadership action to support the changes that a treaty can create in a system moving to a future where we produce what we can collect and recycle, where we manage the collection and reuse or recycling of materials, and we're also looking at how legacy waste can be cleaned up to prevent any pollution of the environment. But the benefits for business are tremendous if we have such a treaty in the future and national action plans, the ability to plan product and factory investments, clear direction from governments about the roadmap ahead for materials use and industrial priorities, as well as potentially harmonizing standards and metrics so we can create economies of scale as we look to the materials of the future. There's no doubt that the possibility of a global plastic treaty is really exciting and there will be a number of opportunities will spring from it, no doubt, as well as the inevitable challenges. Uh, Jody Roussel from Nestle, thanks for taking us through some of them and thanks for your time today. Thank you, Ian. Joining me now are Camille Stefani, Sustainability Manager, and Sophie Verhoot, Strategic Initiatives Manager for the Circular Economy, EMEA at Eastman. Welcome to you both. We have just had a session looking at recycling infrastructure and particularly looking at your technology. Camille, why don't you give us an introduction to what it is that Eastman are doing? So Eastman is a materials innovation company and we are basically pivoting our strategy of using fossil-based 
feedstocks to using plastic waste as a feedstock to make our existing product lines. We have a process called polyester renewal technology where we are basically taking hard to recycle polyester waste which would otherwise end up in incineration or in landfills and we are taking that, depolymerizing that and using those building blocks again to build up the same plastics, the same polyesters. And the great thing about this is that it's complementary to mechanical recycling because we can take stuff that they cannot use and we are actually making a virgin quality, food grade quality product out of that. We last year announced to invest in a facility in our headquarters in Kingsport in Tennessee where we are building a 100 kiloton methanolysis process in front of our existing production assets. And actually earlier this year we announced together with President Macron in France that we are investing up to 1 billion US dollars to build the world's largest molecular recycling facility in France using that polyester renewal technology. And Sophie, what's the scalability of the process? To let our technology flourish, to let it do what we would like it to do at scale, we need three crucial things. Uh, first one is a legislative framework which is clear, which is harmonized and which is hopefully common sense based uh, to ensure us a long-term license to operate. Second point is collaboration across the value chain. So we are very open to engage with all different kind of stakeholders who are part of the debate. And third one is better infrastructure. Uh, I think that's one of the biggest bottlenecks that we are currently facing. So we need to have better infrastructure in order to better sort, better collect and do further processing of the waste. I think there's more than waste enough, but we would like to use it for different streams for different recycling technologies. Those are what, that's what will facilitate scale, but what is the ultimate ambition? How big can this process be, do you think? Yeah, I think chemical recycling will have a specific part in the waste hierarchy. Yeah? So, of course, we are completely agree with reduce, reuse, refill, repair, mechanical recycling. And we are kind of the, the last resort, but I think an important last resort. Uh, and we would be very happy if when our facility is built within a few years that it can work starting from the beginning at the fullest potential and so consume the 160,000 tons of polyester waste from Europe. It certainly feels that there's been an acceptance in the room here today that chemical recycling, which has had its detractors in the past, but it does feel that they, um, there's an acceptance that it is part of the overall solution to dealing with plastic waste and that we need innovation and exciting ideas, much like yours, to help solve the problem. For now, thank you very much to Camille and Sophie from Eastman. Thank you. And I'm with Jenny Wassayar, CSO of Trivium Packaging. And we've just been having a discussion in the session looking at material dilemmas, how to navigate conflicting data points and avoid unintended consequences. Now, Jenny, as well as being CSO at Trivium Packaging, you're also, you've been leading on a World Business Council for Sustainable Development project around the packaging of the future. So tell me a bit about that. Of course, one of the things that you have to look at when you look at sustainability in packaging is not only a one-way street. We cannot make packaging decisions on only one tool or one process. So that's why we came together with the World Business Council Sustainable Development and investigated the areas that we think are mostly of concern when you look at packaging, so that we look beyond only, say, life cycle assessment, but look more of a holistic approach towards sustainability in packaging. And we've identified through a member consultation process around six areas of major concern, or at least areas that you should check when you're developing new materials. The framework that we developed is sort of a wheel that can guide you to making more prominent packaging decisions. So the six areas that we think are very important are carbon footprint, of course, so life cycle assessment, still very important. Then also material efficiency, circularity, optimized end of life, 
harmful substances and finally biodiversity. So it's looking beyond standard tools or one tool, but just taking into account multiple areas to make your packaging decision. Now you mentioned something in the session, how in your view we need to get a beyond thinking just about life cycle assessment. Yep. Why is that? I know you've got quite strong views on this, but tell us why you really think that we are focusing too much on life cycle assessments. Yeah, I think a life cycle assessment gives you a very good indication of the direction of your sustainability footprint or credential of your product. However, it's certainly not taking into account everything yet. I always say these tools, they were developed, or at least the basics for these tools were developed in the last century. So if we just lean on that when the world was still thinking linear, and while we're now currently in a circular economy, there is still a mismatch between what we actually want for the future and what we're leaning on at the moment. So one of the things that we should do is uh, these life cycle assessment, take them as a standard, as a basics. I'm, I'm not saying that you should totally forget about them, but you have to take into account that life cycle assessments can be completely different from tool to tool. And also, even if they are all ISO certified, for example, they can still come up with different numbers. So you always, as a packaging engineer, you always have to make your own decision based on your tool and create reliable comparisons. One of the things that I think it might be missing in life cycle assessment is certainly the circularity part that is not fully taken into account. So if you have materials that are infinitely recyclable, so cradle to cradle is not taken into account. And I think that's a strong miss. Another one is that if you look at the end of life area that I'm personally very passionate about because I want to make sure that we do not pollute the earth, that we keep materials in the loop. That is also not strongly, I say that, calculated through a life cycle assessment that can be improved. It's a very interesting way and clearly a much better way as we go forward looking at the impacts of materials and also making material choices. Just tell our, read our listeners, where can they find more information about the new framework that you developed with the World Business Council for Sustainable Development? So the World Business Council Sustainable Development developed a packaging framework, it's called Sphere. Yep. Uh, and it's available on the website, so if you just type in Sphere, the packaging sustainability framework, you will find it. There's also some interesting business cases that we've built on it already, together for example with Microsoft, where we did some comparisons already for one of their packages to show how you can actually implement this framework in your decision-making processes. Great, very much worth taking a look. We'll try and include a link to that in the podcast description. But Jenny from Trivium Packaging, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much, Ian. Joining me just now is Christina Dixon, Ocean Camping Lead with the Environment Investigation Agency. Welcome to the conference. Thank you. We've just been on a session looking at legislation as an opportunity and how business can utilise incoming regulation to drive effective action. From your perspective, what can business do to influence policy effectively? Yeah, it's a really good question because we do a lot of work at the Environmental Investigation Agency collecting evidence. So from, that's both from field investigations, but also from analysis, desktop research, and also generally engaging with, for example, companies to look at things like, in this context, like the plastic footprint, um, progress towards targets. And one of the things that keeps coming up is what is the relationship between company action and policy? You sort of can't have one without the other. Companies face a real risk if they want to set up a new infrastructure or a solution to plastic pollution. If they're not bringing the whole sector with them or if they don't have a kind of enabling policy environment which can help drive that action. For example, like policy frameworks can stimulate things like investment. So there's a benefit to companies to having regulation in some contexts. So this kind of comes up quite a lot. And our work, for example, with UK retailers involves looking at the plastic footprint, looking at progress towards plastic reduction, but then also looking at what's really missing in policy making. 
And something that we've really taken away from our work over the past sort of three or four years looking at that is, first of all, using the kind of experience of the retailers and the FMCGs that we work with to inform our recommendations, like when the UK or the EU is revising different regulations. So at the moment, the Packaging and Packaging Waste Directive, the Waste Shipment Regulation, and the Environment Act targets, for example, in the UK. Using that information to inform that process, but also really encouraging the businesses themselves to be ambassadors, essentially to be lobbyists. And of course, they're often working through associations to inform policy processes as well. And there's a lot out there that suggests nefarious um, ambitions, I guess, of companies to greenwash or uh, deliberately lobby against legislation in certain markets. Obviously not in favour of that, but what we are in favour of is bringing that experience and taking it into the policy making space and so working collaboratively to have essentially champions within the sector. And not all companies are going to want to be doing the most ambitious thing, but there are companies that are actually, you know, they're very forward thinking, they've got a vision, but they lack the investment and the kind of sectoral support to be driving change. So in the global treaty space, for example, we've seen a number of um, FMCGs actually really come out and attend the negotiations. And these are like multi-day, quite dry negotiations about plastics policy. But FMCGs like Nestle, Unilever, saying, you know, actually, we think this is so important because this is going to be the enabling piece of legislation which transforms the plastic economy for generations to come. And we actually should be there. And we should not just be represented by, for example, plastic producers who also are out in force lobbying around the plastics treaty. But there's a real difference in ambition between the different elements of the plastic value chain. And so it's really important that those perspectives are heard when it comes to, to policy making, particularly at the global level, I would say. And I guess it's the point here is to make, try and make sure that the companies that are being progressive and want to make and implement the change necessary are involved. And then the others that perhaps are looking more to the short term are brought along with the regulation. Exactly, because currently we exist in an environment where companies are potentially competitively really disadvantaged by trying to do the right thing. If they want to have, for example, like a comprehensive monitoring and reporting framework on plastic production use, that requires resource. If they want to pilot and um, even scale up a reusable and refillable packaging system, that requires investment in all of the machinery that would make that happen, the logistics, the staff, the retraining, and then the staff to monitor its implementation. So that's a huge cost. But we see things like reuse and refill as you know, some of the key tools in the toolbox for addressing plastic pollution. And it shouldn't really be on you know, individual retailers to be coming up with and designing a system for something which then they're implementing in isolation. Things like reusable packaging could have standards, which means that you could get your packaging from Tesco but return it to Sainsbury's, just as an example. But that's not in place because there isn't that policy framework to support that. There's a lot to do, isn't there? But for now, Christina <laughs> Dixon from the EIA, thank you very much. And do look out for an extended interview with Christina Dixon with Innovation Forum's B. Stevenson coming out in the next few weeks. For now, though, my thanks to all of our experts for their insights and reflections. I've been Ian Welsh, and until next time, goodbye. Mm-hmm.